Hey everyone, it's Sam, that girl with the curls, bringing you another amazing episode of the podcast, which it's it's been a while, a little bit. Um, I, I don't know offhand, probably a couple weeks, maybe more than that? I don't know. It's a, it's a rough adjustment period right now, and uh, I've got a lot of life stuff happening. So it's becoming a little bit infrequent, but I'm really trying. I've got some uh, new guests uh, planned for post uh, New York Comic Con. So uh, there will be there will be more episodes. They're just going to come a little bit more infrequently now since it's a little you go through kind of like a rough season, I suppose. Um, but I will try and do uh, more episodes based around, you know, maybe a more topical thing instead of just getting straight interviews. So um, if you have any feedback, you can always go to at darling underscore Sammy and let me know if there's anyone that you would actually like me to talk to or talk about. So uh, we could always take suggestions. I say we in the royal we, of course. Uh, but this episode, episode 75, so we're, what, you know, a quarter of a way to uh, 100 episodes, which sounds weird, but awesome. Uh, but this episode, episode 75, is Lucy Bellwood, who I met at Emerald City last year and uh, finally uh, was able to schedule a, a, a Skype date with her so that we could talk all about her uh, amazing story of, you know, being fascinated by tall ships and then going and working on them and, uh, you know, developing developing more as a cartoonist and an illustrator, uh, and all that kind of culminating in uh, baggy wrinkles, which I can't recommend enough to anybody out there who likes informative, educational, and yet really uh, funny and artistic uh, work. So uh, please go out and uh, find that, as well as all of Lucy's um, wonderful work, which I will be linking to on the page where this article is posted on Maniacal Geek. Not on the iTunes site, obviously. But uh, you can always go to maniacalgeek.com, shameless plug, so that you can uh, see, you can at least find uh, links to Lucy's work. Um, Or just type her name into a search engine and you will probably find it there. But uh, I've been going on too long. Uh, Please do enjoy episode 75 with Lucy Bellwood. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. There I was being like, I'm ready! And then I was like, oh, my headphones aren't plugged in. That's It's like, shit, no! I thought I was, but I was wrong. I'm never prepared for anything. Yeah, seriously. I was kept late at the studio, so I like just got off my bicycle and was all sweaty because it was raining out, so I am uh, a better human now, and properly situated and hydrated, and uh, I blew my nose, which was really the biggest concern, because... If there's anything that you don't want on a podcast, it's a lot of mucus. <laughs> I don't know. That can make for some interesting conversation. <laughs> Hello. Like, <laughs> like, what was wrong with the microphone the whole time? Like, well, you know, like a lot of sniffing. Yeah. <laughs> it was just my face. Yeah. I was just, uh, you know, being, uh, I was doing my impression of Donald Trump. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good. So you're all you're all ready to go, and yeah, I'm all situated. Excellent. Uh, well, I've I've been recording for the last minute, so we're technically starting now. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, like, totally gotcha. Um, I actually wanted to uh, congratulate you first because I saw your um, your post about you're going to Iceland. 
Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm part of the Light Gray Art Lab team for 2017. Sweet. Very excited. So is that like, it, so it's a residency in, in like Reykjavik or? It is. It's actually in the north of Iceland, um, but different teams. Uh, basically, Light Gray is a, they're a gallery, but also a sort of arts hub in Minneapolis, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they have been running this retreat <clears throat> slash residency for the last three or four years, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And it started pretty small. A friend of mine said they went to the website and realized they do residencies in lots of different places now. Like there's oh. one in Japan and um, there's local ones as well. But <clears throat> I found out about them because they do a lot of gallery shows and they're all themed and the work that gets submitted is just flipping gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And many of my friends have ended up showing work in their stuff uh, in their gallery before. And those same friends started posting about, hey, I'm going to Iceland this summer for this residency. I was like, what? That looks amazing. And it turns out that each year they've had more and more applicants. So now there are actually four teams of people going for these little five-day residency trips. And basically it's like you'll spend, we're going to spend each day from about 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. out and about exploring some different geographic region Mm -hmm. of the area surrounding the place we're staying in northern Iceland the name of which for the moment escapes me. It's probably uh, really hard to pronounce, too. <laughs> so. It's very difficult to pronounce, and so the <laughs> sounds aren't natural to my brain. Mm. Um, and it's a day of exploring, and then you come back, and there's a team of people, you know, volunteers or, like, scholarship members of the team who are helping with cooking and stuff, and mm-hmm. so there's a big family meal in the evening. And before, and after, before that, I think, we have a bunch of workshop sessions. So basically every artist who's coming brings a workshop with them to the table, mm. and we discuss... <clears throat> elements of our practice that play into how we how we make work or how we might think about ingesting the landscape that we're visiting and turning it into some kind of creative project. And there are exercises based on those workshops, and so everybody gets a bit of enrichment out of the experience. Oh, lovely. And, uh, there's just five days of that, which is not nearly enough to see everything that Iceland has to offer, but uh, is certainly a good place to start. And I think the community aspects of that are going to be really fantastic. Yeah, I'd be like giving you five days in New Zealand, and you're like, there's not enough time, there's all these landscapes and things. and Right, like, but then again, like as somebody who hasn't been to Iceland before and also doesn't drive, I mm-hmm. think having uh, someone who's making the, making the decisions, the thing I'm noticing about the travel that I've been doing this year is like anytime I'm going somewhere where I don't have to think about what I'm eating, Mm-hmm. That's a huge luxury, and it, it seems weird to say, but it allows me so much more time and mental energy to devote to the work. No, it, it totally does. it's not like, you know, grocery shopping, or even if you're in a foreign country, like, okay, which restaurant are we going to go to? And like, oh, I don't speak the language. And, you know, just in terms of decision fatigue, there's like so much energy that gets expended in nourishment. No, exactly. No, I was in, um, I was in Barcelona a couple of years ago and, uh, with a couple of friends of mine and yeah, it's just like you, you start thinking ahead, like you're at breakfast and you're like, okay, so what's dinner going to be like, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> we're going to go exploring. But then at some point we have to think about the fact that our stomachs will be empty and we will need to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we're going to have to try and make decisions while we're hungry, which like, yeah. good luck with that. Exactly. And then it's like, it, it always depends on who's in the group too. It's like someone's usually less inclined to want to make the decisions than uh-huh. They defer, and then someone gets frustrated because they're always making the decisions. <laughs> yep. It's like, group travel is sometimes the most frustrating thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, I am real excited to be in yeah. an environment that's like, not only will we take you to places where there are beautiful things and then let you explore those beautiful things, but we're also going to cook for you, and all you have to do is like share your creative prowess and you know get groovy with each other. Yeah. So. You're just like, yes! 
I'm into that. <laughs> I am all on board for this thing. Yeah. Um, what was it about uh, the the Iceland uh, the, the Iceland trip that intrigued you? Was it has it to do more with what you work on now with like uh, baggy wrinkles, or um, was it just kind of let's just go to Iceland? Um, I think the general trend in my work right now, I'm starting to realize that what I really want to do is not sit behind a desk for the rest of my 20s and <laughs> work on drawing just one project. I would like to be able to go places and draw things while I am in those places. And really, like, the sky's the limit in terms of where I go. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily like I have to go exclusively to maritime locations, although I have really felt good about this year because I managed to get back on like a slightly more extended sailing trip. I was out with the Oliver Hazard Perry, this tall ship in Rhode Island for a week and drew a comic while I was there, which is going to be coming out in the next couple months about what their uh, student training program is like and the kinds of things that they've been working on. And it's always reassuring to know that I can draw comics while I'm doing something Mm -hmm. because that's the concern a lot of the time is like, well, if you're running around Europe and looking at sightseeing and all the rest of it, like there's no time to draw a page of comics every day. And then you'd have to take extensive notes and, like, come back and draw the comic once you get home. And that's infinitely less appealing to me. Yeah. Possibly because I don't trust myself to get things done when I'm not in the pressure cooker environment <laughs> of being on the road. <clears throat> Is there also, like, the aspect of, you know, you're you're in it at the time, but then you might forget it by the time you get home? Absolutely, yeah. And if you don't take enough reference photos, or I, there's just something to be said for, like, on the Perry being there throughout the course of the day and then thinking, okay, what am I going to use to fill this panel it was like being able to walk around in a, it's like somebody gave you a vr headset and a 3d model of the place that your comic is set mm-hmm. and then was like just walk around until you find the, the fat, like vista point that you would like to draw for this panel and then just sit down and draw it from life because nice. it's right here yeah like, <laughs> that's really handy and sometimes i would take a photograph like there there was a day where we took the small boat out because i realized on day five that all of my drawings were of us being on the ship, which is, of course, perfectly logical because that's where we are. Mm-hmm. But the thing that people, that readers are expecting is, like, establishing shots of the ship <laughs> from not on board the ship. And I was like, oh, shoot, I'm never going to get that vantage point because, like, I'm always sailing the boat when the boat is under sail. Mm-hmm. So there was a day where we took the rescue boat out and got to get some glamour shots of the vessel, and that was really cool. Nice. To have that perspective on, like, hey, remember this place that you're drawing is actually a magical floating castle? <laughs> Did you know? I, I did not. Uh, do you do you like to get it like with the sun going down at a, per, a particular place where you're like, yes, that's the money shot right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. You want that like that sweet full sailed look. Yeah, that like Spielbergian kind of like here you go. It's all magic. Totally. <laughs> There's ET in the background. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's kind of like Iceland is. I I'm trying to encourage myself to say yes to things or to to apply for things that aren't. I think, A, that aren't traditionally open to cartoonists, and it's not that Light Grey is in non-comics residence. I think that's a pretty easy um, crossover for illustration to comics, and they've certainly had comics people there before for Mm -hmm. previous residencies. But there are lots of other arts residencies, you know, in lighthouses and, like, monasteries and container ships and all sorts of places all over the world. And traditionally, cartoonists don't go for that kind of stuff. There uh, any particular reason, or they just don't think it's open to them? In some cases, it's a it's a chicken and egg question because it's like, well, we assume that those like either people don't know about those residencies because they're not generally advertised to cartoonists, so we don't think that they're open to us. Mm. When in fact, I think there's something to be said for being a narrative storyteller approaching uh, an environment that has traditionally not had 
narrative storytelling type people involved. So a really good example is the trip I'm taking in the winter before Iceland. That's like next summer. It's so far away from now. <laughs> uh, but in December, I'll be going to Guam. Oh, wow. With the Schmidt Ocean Institute. And they asked me if I would come be an artist in residence on their research vessel, the RV Falkor. Mm-hmm. The Falkor? Okay. <laughs> yeah, nerds. Uh, <laughs> turns out scientists, nerds. Oh, go um, figure. <laughs> yeah, right. So they have this, this vessel that uh, takes on applicants who have like community funded science research projects that they want to do oceanographic projects mm-hmm. and uh the vessel is theirs to use if they get the residency so there's two teams of scientists at any given time and also artists in residence and looking at the previous people they've had the, the program is pretty fledgling it's it's newer uh and they've had some really impressive excellent people but they're also very conceptual mm-hmm. artists so it'll be people who are like taking pH measurement data from the experiments that are being done on board and then like weaving it into a conceptual textile piece oh, wow. that's gonna go into MoMA and like that's really cool mm-hmm. but if the purpose of your organization like Schmidt has a very uh, overt educational like common good outreach bent mm-hmm. to their mission statement so their goal is to take all that research and make it publicly available and to do a lot of school outreach and classroom visit outreach and I think especially given the current cultural resurgence of comics and graphic novels is like, Ooh, these are, you know, not just for kids anymore, but also great for kids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's this weird double standard right now of people being like, you know, you kids need to read more comics cause that gets them into real reading. But also this attitude of no comics need to be dark and gritty and like for grownups. And the fact of the matter is that it's a medium so they can be all of those things. Let's go figure that, uh, you know, art and, and words can, uh, can be used for me- multiple purposes. Many, many, <laughs> purposes actually probably the most modular pairing of things ever yeah mm. it's great are you so, telling me that kids can't learn about uh you know uh, the ocean from going to mama <laughs> <laughs> and it's not to say that it's not, like all of it i think plays into that but i can totally see the appeal of contacting somebody who does explicitly educational like easy to understand middle grade comics about the sea and being like cool can you take this complicated scientific research and actually make it more transparent rather than more obtuse or more opaque or like abstracting it a couple more degrees because the data is already challenging for somebody who's not initiated into the cult of marine biology Mm -hmm. to understand and i'm i'm no scientist i will say that right up front so oh damn it that's it uh, well podcast (laughs) over curious to see how this is going to shake out but again i think in this instance there's something of a strength to that to be able to say look I don't know what's going on here, but that means that I will be in a perfect position to learn and then explain what I've just learned to somebody else. Yeah, the the distillation process of knowledge, especially from the scientific community, is often you know the the best way of reaching people who are, I mean are laymen's where we're just kind of like, okay, you just said a bunch of really big words and things and whatnot, but I have no context. So yeah, exactly. So the, I have no idea what it's going to be like, and I'm sure so much of it depends on the temperament of the scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I would imagine are going to be, you know, fascinating people. It's really what I'm, what I'm starting to recognize is that the work that gets me most excited is generally tied to making contact with other people who are really passionate about what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not limited to other cartoonists. I mean, I think if anything, one of the greatest joys of putting baggy wrinkles out into the world to a wider audience this past year has been getting to tour behind the scenes at maritime museums and hear from like, you know, 18th century textile specialists who want to tell me all about naval uniforms from the British Navy in a particular time period, or like people who 
have sent me books from their antiquarian book collections and then we talk about book binding and like get really nerdy about that Mm -hmm. and (laughs) mostly it's just I like being around people who are really passionate about what they're doing and then seeing if I can take some of that passion and communicate it to other people no I'm uh I'm super jealous of that whole like getting to go behind the scenes of the museums kind of stuff like I used to work at the um so in Seattle we have the Museum of Flight uh-huh. Um, I used to work in the archives as an intern, and so being able to like be behind the scenes, getting to touch those you know pieces of history, and then go into the museum and be like, I worked on a collection about that thing over there. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Like those are the, those are the things that are just really appealing to me, you know. So the fact that you get to go behind the scenes in like these maritime museums that just have like you know wall to wall like you know stuff to just be able to to immerse yourself in must be fascinating. Yeah, it's super neat. And I think, you know, a lot of those people are delighted to share Mm -hmm. if they're asked. Like, everyone likes to feel special, and everyone likes to feel like their particular weird passion is fascinating to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said for being a person who catches excitement easily. Because if you can smile and nod and be like, oh my gosh, yes, show me that thing, that sounds amazing, (laughs) even though I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Possibly because I don't know anything about it, it's even more exciting. And... That's, that's a really great asset because I think it lights other people up as well. And then they're eager to share with you. It's not like you're putting them out by asking to see the thing that they're really excited about. Exactly. And then, I mean, yeah, once you get kind of that, like, oh my God, I have this thing to show you. Please show me. Like, all right. And then everything just kind of goes from there where you're like, yeah, let's find another thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> then you're just like, you're off. But I recognize that like museum curators can't do that for every single person no. who comes into the museum. So having the book has been a really convenient way to have that door opener Mm because I think in a lot of places you know librarians and archivists are like people who really want to share the knowledge that they're curating with others it's just a question of having the right angle Mm -hmm. uh not in a mercenary way just in like you need something to open the door yeah no definitely I mean uh, with my um with my profession as an archivist, it's often difficult to, first of all, explain to people what it is we do. Um, and then the second thing is like to try and explain like how it, how it works within like the context of either the company, the institution, or just society in general. Um, so being able to have a firm grasp of it, first of all, and then to be able to explain it is a huge asset. Yeah. (laughs) And then you hope that there's someone out there who, like, once you explain what it is, will be like, oh my god, that's so fascinating, please tell me more. You're like, oh, thank you. For things like that, the people, I mean, the thing that I hear again and again, which was my experience when I first found out that you could still get on a tall ship and, like, go do that for a while, Mm -hmm. uh, is people saying, I had no idea you could still do this. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't even know this was a thing. I thought tall ships were extinct. Yeah. And it's like, well, no. They went the way of the dinosaur, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's so many of them in all the corners of the globe, and they do all sorts of different things, and, like, you can go on one. Uh, (laughs) You can go on several. (laughs) At the same time, can you, like, cross over? (laughs) Yeah, the Tall Ships Festival? Are you kidding? They're parked cheek by jowl. It's great. Nice. Uh, When I was on the Lady Washington and we would go sailing, we had the Hawaiian chieftain and her sister ship. They would sail together, and in particularly tight docking places, we would just raft the two ships together. So you would have, you know... Uh, a ramp going from the dock to the Lady Washington and then a ramp going across the Lady Washington to the Hawaiian Chieftain and they would just be tied up to each other. Nice. And uh, people would traipse across from one to the other. <laughs> just jumping but, over. Yeah, I think saying, like, you know, that I have this job that you've probably never considered as an actual job, but being a cartoonist, actually, is one of those things, too, that mm-hmm. folks are like, I guess I read comics, but I never really thought that, like, people made comics. 
<laughs> I I'm always that... curious about that, what age kids are at when they realize that it's not just like, I like Batman. It's like, I like this particular person's Batman. Yeah. Different artists draw different Batmans. Batmans. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that. I would like to read that comic, The Batmans. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is that is really interesting. Yeah, once you, um, especially like depending on how young you are when you start reading comics, because um, mm-hmm. I actually started reading it, reading them in college, like exclusively. Um, I, I was much more of a cartoon person, uh, which is what got me into it. But yeah, like if you're a young kid and you start reading Batman, like if it's a more all ages book. Um, and then you kind of get older and you graduate into, I guess, the more mature stuff, which what the hell does that mean anymore? (laughs) It's like, here's some Frank Miller, like, oh, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Like, maybe not. Uh, but yeah, like, when do you make that distinction as to like, oh, it's not the same person every time. It's so many different people. (laughs) Well, and I think there's something to be said for like, it, it didn't occur, that didn't really, that issue didn't occur to me, got into reading comics mostly through reading web comics and mm. those were largely autobiographical comics drawn by women mm-hmm. you know without a publisher so it was just like here's me putting my comics on the internet so it was very clear this is the person who makes these comics mm-hmm. and prior to that it had really just been like you know sunday funnies and calvin and Hobbes. yeah and i think because my mother was a cartoonist for a while before i was born and so she drew with me a lot when i was a kid and we had you know my parents were both writers so i spent a lot of time when i was growing up witnessing like the creative process in action Mm -hmm. that I think I had more of a stranglehold on oh look people make these things but there's still a part of me that wigs out when I especially in my career now there's this weird thing that's happened where like the generational gap is shrinking and so people who were miles ahead of me when I was a kid are now kind of my contemporaries because a Mm -hmm. decade or two doesn't actually make that big a difference once you're all in that margin of, like, being adult professionals, whatever that means. Yeah, it's basically just your style that kind of differentiates you at that point. Yeah, and there's that interesting thing of, like, whoa, I'm I'm meeting this person who made this YouTube show that I watched when I was younger that I was really into in high school, or, like, I'm meeting a person who drew a comic that was really influential for me when I was in college, and, like, that is still surreal to me. Even Mm -hmm. though I know that real people make those things. Just like I know that real people read my comics, but until I meet them face-to-face at a show, I somehow don't believe they're real. Yeah, I can understand (laughs) Because the internet is a weird place, and it's really hard to translate likes and retweets and faves and whatever into human beings pressing buttons. No, exactly. It's uh, social media, I mean, especially has just changed how we even, like, um, just talk with each other, you know? It's mm-hmm. 140 character or less, you know, conversations that, you know, if you wanted to keep it going, maybe you might email someone, but for the most part, you're like, okay, how can I summarize this? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and- There's a website that I've been obsessed with recently uh, that a friend of mine turned me on to called uh, Meatspace, or Meatspac. Okay. It's dot uh, E-S, right, at the end, um, or at C Anyway, it's meet space, but it's got the last two letters separated by a period. Okay. Um, and it's a chat room uh, where you can type a message. I think it's like up to 220 characters. And when you hit send, it records a, a one second GIF of whatever you're doing. So it'll, re- I mean, it'll take the recording for like five seconds and then compress it into a one second GIF that loops. And that GIF plays alongside whatever chat you just sent to the room. Mm-hmm. So people have an image, a moving image of your face from the time when you sent the chat. And 
describing this service is kind of like describing a VR headset to somebody who's never worn one. Because mm-hmm. I was really, someone described it to me, and I was like, oh, that sounds fun. And then I went and tried it, and was like, whoa, these are actual humans. <laughs> this is so cool. Like, it completely changes the tenor of how I communicate with people online. And it's a mm-hmm. weird, small community, uh, but the people there know each other and have done for quite some time like it was it was more of a fad when it first came out and so a bunch of people were there and it was kind of impossible to keep up with and now there's generally like five to ten users at any given time and not all of them are talking okay. um, and some people just use it for silly gift jokes and you know they'll like make silly gifts of their own faces uh pulling faces or like doing weird tricks uh with the looping gift mechanism you gotta but, see how you can break the system a little bit or stretch the yeah, boundaries exactly <laughs> um but there's really something I, I found it surprisingly moving. <laughs> I really? don't know how else to put it. That to put not just an avatar that's a photo of your face, but like a live image of your face while you're doing that. I don't know. It's it's kind of like Snapchat, I guess, mm-hmm. in the way that some people use Snapchat to communicate, and it's a more immediately like this is my face saying this thing that I'm saying to you right now kind yeah. of way. Yeah, I but mean, it takes the anonymity out of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and the motion. For some reason, the motion of the GIF adds a great deal, I think. Uh, yeah, it's it's really an interesting, like, just how visual we really are. Like, you know, there's only so much that words can get across, but once we have, like, something we can latch onto that we know is, is real for the most part, it, yeah. it changes how we interact with it. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, wow. No, so what, what was that thing called again? Uh, it's called Meet Space. Um, let me just type it in so I can figure out where the browser thing is. Meet... Okay, um, so it's actually meetspac, S-P-A-C, mm-hmm. dot E-S. Okay. Cool. No, we'll have to... I might have to try that then. <laughs> like, yeah, just go... Just, like, pop in there, and it'll ask for access to your... Um, your browser will need access to your computer uh, camera. Mm. And then that'll be what it uses to take the little gif of your face, but it's, it's pretty cool. Okay, cool. No, I have to get over that whole Snowden thing, and then uh, yeah. <laughs> move on to it. Um, so uh, I want to backtrack a little bit, because we've we've covered a lot of ground here, and uh, <laughs> which is good, it's great. Um, because I, I uh, read uh, Baggy Wrinkles over the weekend in anticipation of this conversation, and um, been, you know, looking at your comics and whatnot for a while now. So um, I did want to kind of start with, uh, before you, you went on that first tall ship, because um, was was the maritime uh, the the love of the nautical and the maritime like always there, or was that once you found that situation, was that just like then you're like, oh, okay, I can do that, and then that love kind of sp- you know spawned from that. I was really obsessed with uh, Cutthroat Island when I was a <laughs> oh my, <laughs> my best friend and I watched that film religiously, and then Pirates of the Caribbean came out, which was like. A distant second. Mm. I mean, it was pretty good at the time. Everyone got really into it, but like Cutthroat Island, by far a better film. No, my sister and I used to watch that a lot when we were younger. The jokes are way worse. Uh, The accents are spectacularly sloppy. Poor Gina Davis. Like nobody gives a damn. They're just like, look, we're not even going to pretend that we're all fake British, even though everyone wouldn't have been fake British in the Caribbean at this time anyway. (laughs) And everyone's just going to be whatever they are, American. (laughs) Like from the Bronx, whatever. We're, I just feel like Frank Langell is just having the time of his life because oh he's, god, he chews that scenery so good. Such a paycheck movie for him. Yeah. <laughs> but just like also, I think there, it's it's a genuinely better feminist film than Pirates of the Caribbean is. Like Gina hmm. Davis is a far better heroine with more great like greater agency than 
uh, Keira Knightley gets to be in Pirates of the Caribbean. That that's interesting. Like I've I've never even thought about that. And, and Go back and rewatch it. It is shockingly progressive. She like maintains not only personal agency but also like sexual agency throughout the film. Like mm-hmm. even when she's getting her romance on with her slave boy, like her slave boy that she buys, who's under her command. Like, she's still, I don't know, the whole way through the movie, like, the, di- the dynamic between them is one of partners or she's in charge. And that strikes me as really unusual for the time period. Yeah, she's so always kind of, like, got the upper hand on him, even when it looks like he ha- he has it at times. <laughs> like, she, exactly. she always wins in the end. She's like, yeah. Yeah, and, like, yeah, and they, like, they like each other, but it's also she's the one who's calling the shots. And I, I don't know. That's It was certainly not something I was thinking about at 13, but when I go back and rewatch the movie, which I do probably once a year. Yay. Uh, <laughs> We've all got to have our rituals. I've never heard of it before, and it's like, how have you been living your life? That was, like, the only pirate movie I had for, like, the longest time that I really appreciated, because, I mean, you you get your kind of, like, old Disney movies, like Treasure Island and everything, and, um, but yeah, that was, like, the the big one, because it was, like, oh, it's so huge, and there's, like, all the ships, and then the pirates, and, because I I went through a pirate phase when I was young, so, (laughs) which I think everybody does at some point, (laughs) like... And what precipitated it for you? For me, um, it's really weird because I've always had a love of history. Like, I can't really even pinpoint when the love of history started. It's just kind of always been there. But, and so I I would get into, like, different phases of history. Like, I I was at one point into the Wild West, and then it was, like, pirates, and then, you know. Right, right. Like, there was just phases where you're like, oh, that looks interesting. And then I had access to a border, so I would just go and buy a a bunch of books. (laughs) So Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so so with you, uh, it was Cutthroat Island kind of like pushed that forward, and then you're like, oh my god, tall ships are a thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, well, I mean, I think I was excited about tall ships, and then I got really into pirates, and then I subscribed to this um, nerdy magazine called mm. No Quarter Given, which was a <laughs> quarterly pirate magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, well done on the title, by the way. Nerd child. <laughs> And, like, I used to go to school in costume every day. I mean, I would wear, like, Renaissance Festival garbed school, but I went to weird hippie school, so miraculously I didn't get beat up for it. Okay. Uh, well done. Hey, <laughs> hippies. Um, and I think I got into, I was doing a lot of theater, and I got into Renaissance festivals before I got into, like, actual sailing. Mm-hmm. But the kicker for me with Ren Fairs was, like, you, there's, there's not a lot to Okay. Ultimately, after the thrill of like, oh my gosh, look at this incredible anachronistic environment, and there's all this stuff, and like, the thing that kept coming back to me was, ah, this is, it's still just dressing up in a lot of expensive leather goods, and then like, hanging out in a field. Mm-hmm. But there's no objective, and I had friends who worked the fair, and so they were involved in like, the court reenactments, and doing jousting, and fencing, and all this other stuff, and that was appealing to me, but there was still something theatrical about it that didn't quite have the, the grit of realness that I was kind of hankering for. So you're you're really into, I, like, the authenticity angle, aren't you? Well, I think it's not even... Man, what is it? It's, it's like, it's the work. Mm-hmm. I think the craftsmanship, like, the, the working aspects, I imagine if I had ended up in a situation where I was doing, like, blacksmithing at a Renaissance festival, that would probably appeal to me more than the CNBC performative aspect of just showing up. It's not so much that I'm a huge stickler for historical accuracy, although... I have some interesting theories about, like, why the prospect of going and working on a tall ship that was more or less stuck in the 18, the 1790s 
and like working very hard to keep it that way is appealing to me mm. from my own like personal history and desire for a constant sense of permanence in, in my life like there there are parts of me that think that that was almost the most the most conservative thing I could have done mm-hmm and there's also something very secure about being on a tall ship because your home goes with you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. There's no, to a lot of people, they think, oh, that's so adventurous. You know, you're like picking up and going off into the unknown. And it's like, no, you're not. The known is 24 by 68 feet and it's where you live and it is with you always. So your surroundings are going to change, but like the place that is your home is not going to change. Yeah. And you're going to work very hard to make sure that it doesn't change. And I think that's been a theme that's cropped up throughout my life we moved when I was really young and that was a a kind of triggering point for me that meant after that I had a really strong connection to wanting my house to be absolutely stable Mm -hmm. and secure and like I didn't want anyone to touch it I didn't want anyone to you know come in and mess around with it when I didn't have agency over that and so you wanted that that stability that stability right and that security and there's a part of me that in recent years as I've been looking into the idea of drafting a a longer like lately fictionalized graphic novel version of my coming of age experience on tall ships Mm -hmm. I would really love to do a longer comic about that and started kind of plotting that out at the start of this year um and that got sideswiped by all the promotion I was doing for baggy wrinkles because I've been gone just every single month but Mm -hmm. I'm uh hoping to get back to that in 2017 that would be really nice no, that would be, I mean, what, with what you've done with Baggy Wrinkles, I mean, you can, it can only get better from there. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, it's very kind of you to say, I, I feel like at the end of Baggy Wrinkles, that was, I was kind of realizing what the platonic form of what I wanted that series to look like was, mm-hmm. you know, because those comics were all, each chapter was a little mini comic that was done a year or two apart. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter is the first mini comic I had ever drawn. So it's a lot of artistic development in 130 pages. I was going to say, like, stylistically, it's it's really interesting to see the the evolution of, of your For art, sure, yeah. um, especially because the scurvy comic is the last one, um, which I think is probably one of my favorites. Just Oh, yeah, definitely. Mine, too. I mean, I think when I go back and read that, it's like, yes, this is what I want. It's the balance between, you know, the personal involvement and my own passion coming through, but then also a bit of history and some educational stuff and a lot of humor mm-hmm. and... It's bright and cheerful, and, you know, uh, Joey and Michelle did a, a really amazing job, my colorists, at kind of tying the whole book together. I think their colors are the reason that it works as well as it does as a whole, in spite of the fact that the uh, constituent chapters are all drawn slightly differently. Yeah. Like, it's like, l- witness the evolution of the pencils, but look at the colors. The colors are amazing. <laughs> yes. Ooh, look at the colors, Duke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for making that joke. <laughs> I'll always find a way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with, with, with um, wh- I guess then what made you, um, no, listen, we're still on, we're still on the, the tall ship that you went on, so what was what kind of what did the experience that you got out of being on that first tall ship oh boy Uh, my family and i went out for a a three-hour battle sail Mm. with um the lady washington and the hawaiian chieftain will go out together and they both have deck guns so they'll fire off these uh black powder charges at each other and basically engage in like reenactment naval combat which is pretty cool Mm -hmm. uh again still renaissance festival reenactment stuff but there's a degree of reality to it when you're you know moving 
enormous tall ships around. Yeah. Uh, which not is like, pretty good. It's not like the Renaissance people are going at you with swords or anything like that. I mean, like, not yeah, really. Yeah, but, like, they're, they're offensing demos and stuff like that. And, again, it's one of those things where had I been involved in that aspect of the fair, I might have found it more appealing. Mm-hmm. There's definitely something... I think most people have this, right? Like, the feeling of belonging that comes from... I'm sure you had this working at the museum. Like, if you're on the team and you get to go through the staff-only door and, like, you have a job to do and you're there for a reason, there's something really valuable and appealing about that. And it's something that I find really uncomfortable visiting tall ships or museums or maritime museums or whatever when I'm not on the crew because I desperately want to express, like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm one of you. Like, I know you want, you want to have that feeling of belonging because mm-hmm. I know what it's like to be, you know, even the most well-intentioned museum docent or like tall ship sailor or person in any kind of community. If you're engaging with the public, there is an us and them mentality. Yeah, definitely. And it's unfortunate if you're on the other side of that when you aren't usually and to try and figure out like how to breach that divide can be really difficult and, high, and kind of heartbreaking and like you don't want to come off as desperate but you're also like i just want to belong it's like no you don't understand i'm with you i'm part of yeah, this like i know i know what you're doing uh, it's like please appreciate me so yeah we we went out for this three-hour thing and it's just a lot of like getting to watch the crew running around and doing all of this you know adventurous stuff and uh they were just like a well-oiled machine. I mean, the whole group of people were uh, working together in such perfect unison. And there's a whole bunch of shouting that goes on mm-hmm. when you're uh, sailing a tall ship. There's a lot of call and response between the uh, first mate and all the crew. And that's a really uh, wonderful thing to witness in and of itself. But in this particular era of Lady Washington history... The crew, the first mate and the crew had developed this rapport of sail handling commands interspersed with Eddie Izzard bits. Oh my god. And I was a really big Eddie Izzard fan, and so like being in this environment with all of these people who were running around screaming and shouting and sailing this tall ship and then throwing in all of these jokes, it was like, what's happening? I need to go to here. Was, was there a cake or death reference? There was actually, so at the end of setting all of the sails when we were headed out into the harbor, the, there was a lull in all of the command shouting, and the first mate strode to the front of the quarterdeck and said, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we set sail over 50 years ago. And the whole crew screened back, no, surely not, no one was alive then, and it was really just a beautifully orchestrated piece of stuff. Oh. I mean, I like, like I said, I was really into theater, and there's a lot that is very theatrical about that kind of... Uh, labor and it's not just for public benefit it's not like everyone is play acting Mm -hmm. to help teach the people about you know what it was like on a tall ship it's like in order to get the boat to go you have to do a lot of shouting yeah and sailing benefits from a certain amount of energy although i will say that uh i this is a culturally dependent thing like japanese ships are almost silent uh I, i was having a conversation with a couple sailor friends about this and there are other vessels where like the first and second mates will communicate all of their commands through a series of whistles, Roll. and the deck is just silent while everything is being done. It's all, like, you know, super precise. People just know what the pattern of whistling means, mm-hmm. and then they dive in and go do that thing, which is uh, cool. It's like, like, I'm a shouter. I like shouting. So. It's cool in a really disturbing way, you know? Like, right. It's, <laughs> like, very, it's very impressive. 
feel like in one of those like horror movies where you don't like you're just kind of standing there no one's saying anything and then suddenly like a whistle over the over the din <laughs> yeah and then off it goes yeah but yeah I, I collared the nearest crew member at the end of the trip and said how do i how do i go do this mm-hmm. like, please take me with you and they said we've got a volunteer program you should totally come and sign up and so i went back my spring break of my senior year of high school mm-hmm. i guess that would have been and did my two weeks of training, and uh, that was in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. And after that, I was a volunteer, and I, I came back for various two-week stretches um, over the course of the next year. And then the following summer, I was there, spring and summer, I was there for a big, long three-month stretch, and that was just heaven. What uh, what was the adjustment process like for you? Did you did you take to it pretty quickly? I took to it pretty quickly. Um, I'm trying to think what the biggest adjustment is. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not particularly picky. I did a lot of camping growing up, so like roughing it by sleeping in a room with eight other people is not really a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding that I was going to be seasick a lot of the time was kind of frustrating, but like ultimately, okay, this is the way that it's going to be. Was it just a <laughs> um, given, or did you develop that kind of uh, seasickness, like as just being on there for that long? Everybody gets seasick. Okay. I think this is something. There are fo- the the saying always goes that there are those who have been seasick, those who will be seasick, and those who are lying. Those mm. are the three different kinds of sailors. Because <laughs> um, it's like, it, it gets everyone eventually, and it's, it can it can come on. There are some people who have stomachs of iron, the ship can be pitching and yawing and everything else, and they'll be totally fine, but it's a calm day, and the ship is rolling in just the right, very, very gentle way, and suddenly mm. they're herking over the side. So it's like, you don't really know when it's going to strike, but I think <laughs> it's, it's definitely something I've noticed that if I am at sea for an extended period of time, my body adjusts. Mm-hmm. And after that, it's not as big of a deal. I think the problem with working on the lady is that because we're we're working, like, educational trips that are really just day sails, uh, we're doing a lot of being a dock, being at sea, being a dock, being at sea, being under transit, being in a dock, being at sea, being back at the dock, being, you know. So it's like <laughs> there's not a lot of time in any one location to really get comfortable mm-hmm. in your equilibrium situation. <laughs> the entire crew has a nice green shade to their uh, their faces the whole time. Like, Absolutely. Oh, God. oh man, and I learned in the same way that like proprioception, right, is the experience of feeling your your skin and your extremities, like knowing where all the parts of your body are. Mm-hmm. Um, equilibrioception is the word for ascertaining where your balance is supposed to be. Oh wow! It's like I learned this really big word because it's very important to me right now. <laughs> yeah, I just it, well because I remember coming off. Uh, the Oliver Hazard Perry and being like, gosh, I really want to know what is happening in the inner ear that, that determines that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want to understand that process and in the, in the process of digging around about that, I found equilibrioception. I, it actually, is that right? I think it may have even come into my life via a different avenue. Like, somebody mentioned it in an article that I was reading about something entirely unrelated and I flipped out because it was like, I was just looking for this word! It's like, oh my god! Yeah, it's just, it's fate. It's like, don't worry, like, when it's a, it's a great uh, Jeopardy question as well, so one day that's mm-hmm. gonna really come in handy. <laughs> Be like, what is, like, I got it! I did it! <laughs> I read that somewhere, or developed it, I don't know. <laughs> um, so how many, um, how many ships would you say you've been on at this point? If you've been even keeping count. Like, to visit or to work on? Either way, I mean, if you, uh, like, let's let's say worked on first. Okay, so there's the Lady Washington, there's the um, XC Johnson in San Pedro. Uh, I haven't worked on the Hawaiian Chief extensively, but like I've been sailing aboard here before. Uh, the 
Oliver Hazard Perry, so we're up to four. Mm-hmm. Um, the Charles W. Morgan, the, the last wooden whaling ship in the world, is a ship that I got to go out sailing with. And that was, again, just for a day, but it was part of this really kind of big deal of a, of a voyage, which did not strike me as quite as significant as it might have had I grown up on the East Coast, because the Morgan is the primary fixture at Mystic Seaport's mm-hmm. big museum, and she is an original wooden whaling ship, the last one in the world, and so everyone's, wow. you know, really uh, excited about her, but she sits as a dockside museum permanently, and has done for the last 90 years. She has not been a seagoing vessel in that entire time. Mm-hmm. And when you visit, I had never been to Mystic Seaport prior to getting this invite to go out and uh, join in this voyage. And the experience of sailing aboard her was cool and exciting. And it was neat to see all the restoration work and like to touch the parts of the vessel that were from the 1840s. But the, the emotional enormity of it didn't seem to be hitting me in the same way that it was hitting other people who were there, Mm -hmm. either on crew or as passengers. And it wasn't until they, so this had been like a massive restoration project and they decided to take her out sailing for three months up and down the East Coast. And it required this really expensive outfitting. I think it was like $3 million or something went into renovating the ship. And at the end of all of that, she went back to Mystic and back to the dockside exhibit. And when I was out there on book tour this summer, I stopped in and got to see her and I realized when I saw the way that she's situated, it's like very much a permanent, stable, stationary fixture mm-hmm. at this museum. And everybody goes there. Like all, all these kids on the East Coast, you know, they go on school field trips or their parents take them in the summer. It's like the thing that everyone does in New England. Yeah. And so everybody knew her, but nobody had ever known her as a ship that sailed. Whereas all the tall ships that I'd come into contact with from Jump were vessels that were working vessels, mm-hmm. even if they were replica ships. So that was a... Uh, that was a neat piece of perspective to gain. Uh, and it made me even more grateful in retrospect that I'd been able to go out because who knows if they're going to take her sailing again. It's a huge endeavor to get her out the Mystic River because it's very shallow. So mm. the vessel has to be downrigged. They have to take down the, the upper masts and then also remove a ton of the ballast uh, in order to get her out so she doesn't draw as much. The keel doesn't sit as low. Mm-hmm. Well, and-, and then they have to put it all back together at the mouth of the river and then like get her out to the ocean. Well, and I would imagine, like, the water does a whole lot to, to deteriorating the hull as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's basically, I mean, the ocean is, like, pretty much the most corrosive and damaging environment you could possibly put a piece of equipment in. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not really sure who came up with this whole boats idea, but they didn't really think it through. <laughs> um, and, and when you, you know, when you talked about the Japanese culture, you know, being very different in terms of how they sail, do you, did you find that there was um, a difference between East Coast and West Coast sailing at all? There were actually some similarities that I found really charming. Uh, The crew on the Morgan, who, again, are drawn from... It's a pretty small world, the world of tall ship sailors, so Mm -hmm. chances are good if you crew with somebody, they have crewed with someone who knows somebody that you've crewed with on a previous ship. Mm -hmm. Uh, They get around. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Important everything. I I did find that uh, when they were launching the whale boats, um, the little rowboats, on the Morgan, we were sailing in the Stillwagen Marine Sanctuary, and so we sent the whale boats out to go and get a closer look because there were so many whales, oh. and we didn't kill any. It was just a like, hey, we want to go and check these out kind of situation. But um, as they were rowing away, the call and response cry was that everybody um, on the on board the vessel would shout down to the people in the whale boats, "Have fun storming the castle!" and 
everyone in the boat would shout back, do you think it'll work? And then the people on board would say, it'd take a miracle. Oh my Which God. is, of course, what we would always say if we were leaving somebody behind on the dock on the Lady Washington and <laughs> they had their day off or something and they'd cast off our mooring lines. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it was really nice to have this little moment of like, oh, that's sweet. You know, <laughs> I love nerds. Remain the same. I love nerds so much. It's just, it's so great to like, you know, Eddie Izzard and then the Princess Bride. You're like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> right. And a thing that has been really like this is the part and especially because i haven't been able to go sailing as much over the last six years because i've been working on this stupid book (laughs) slash you know going to college and like learning to be a professional cartoonist and i've I've been busy like i get it it's fine whatever (laughs) i also get frustrated that what i really you know given that so much of my work revolves around being a sailor when everyone's like when's the next time you're going sailing when was the last time you went sailing i'm like never i just want to go in a boat and i can't because i have to freelance for money um like oh my life (laughs) but the cool thing is that now you know having gotten the book out and done the kickstarter and everything like it's starting to come around to a place where people um know that that's my jam Mm -hmm. and so i'm getting to do things like going out on the Oliver Hazard Perry, uh, which is probably ship number five. So I think, I think that's it in terms of vessels that I've worked on, worked mm-hmm. on. And then uh, you have a count of... I've visited uh, a lot of other ones that, you know, either at, at tall ship festivals or, like, I've gone out to um, go sailing with friends on their ships or stuff like that. But those are the vessels that I've done, like, actual crewing aboard. Yeah. And I'd like to up that number if possible. That would be... Very nice. Uh, I'm I'm sure that you'll you'll probably get up there after <laughs> after a year of traveling in Guam yeah. and Iceland and whatnot. Yeah, I'm real I'm really excited for that. And again, that's you know something that came about because I said, look, I've got this really nerdy niche interest, and I'm not averse to other types of boats. Yes, there's a part of me that's like, well, the RV Falcor isn't going to be uh, a sailing vessel, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a bummer. But honestly, like to get to go to sea for 20 days and like sail from Guam to Honolulu and privy to all this ocean research stuff like i'm super into that no that's i mean that's awesome that you get to you know not only do the thing that you love in terms of like the the being able to educate people through your cartoons and whatnot but then you get to just have these experiences of just being on board these ships and you know traveling these routes that you know really no one travels all that much anymore so Uh certainly not from that vantage point yeah. yeah No, the thing I was going to say earlier that I was getting so excited about is that um, I've, I've started to hear from tall ship sailor friends that people, like, they've met folks who are now professional mariners who, when asked how they got into it, cite the fact that they found my comics on the internet and Aww. read them. And that inspired them to go and become sailors. And, like, there was a girl who I spoke to at Emerald City who, who messaged me on Tumblr yesterday and said, hey, I'm about to start my two weeks training on the Hawaiian Chieftain. And that's more or less because I talked to you at Emerald City. Like, thanks for encouraging me to do that. And when I get those kinds of messages, it blows my mind. Mm-hmm. And it just gets me so excited. And I, I this is that thing about the internet is that you just don't know. Because there's probably lots of other people who haven't reached out to tell me that that's what happened but i'll hear it through you know other sailors in my network and then also the fact that certain lines from the comic have become catchphrases of their own on tall ships really yes uh people on the on the lady washington and the hawaiian chieftain and now that has extended to other ships as those sailors have gone off and like crewed on other vessels mm-hmm. uh if something goes terribly wrong they will now say you've ruined everything the entire ocean is broken <laughs> and that is just like i 
I pinch myself every time. So I haven't been back to the Lady Washington since the bu- the book has been out, but they've been selling my comics on board in their little pop-up gift shop that they run uh, ever since they were coming out as little mini comics. I mean, it's like a real boon for them to be able to have something in their gift store that is friendly for kids and, you know, is a little bit unusual. So I'm not sure how the books are doing compared to the mini comics, but really well, I would hope. Yeah, uh, no, because uh, that even that story about the Lady Washington um, in Japan was uh-huh. uh, just, I mean... Uh, again, like looking at how you're, you know, was that you changing your style for the story or was that part of the evolution? It was changing my style. I think it was more. So I collaborated with my friend Jim Mockford on that, who's a maritime historian uh, in his spare time. He actually works for Wacom, the graphics uh, company, mm-hmm. and they're based here in Portland. But he came to me and was like, hey, there's this episode from the Lady Washington's history that I think could make an interesting comic. And so we spent a lot of time hashing out uh, how to properly adapt it because history, I don't know if you know this, mm. probably do, is <laughs> a squirrely motherfucker, and it's really difficult to like hammer it into a format that is friendly for standard narrative thinking. Yeah. Uh, especially in an instance like this, where like we have conflicting accounts, and you, know, you want to have primary sources, but the primary sources from Japan have to be run through the filter of understanding that any kind of contact with Westerners at that point would have been illegal. So mm-hmm. you don't think anybody would have gone and written it down and been like, what did you do today? Oh, a felony. <laughs> like, you're not going to write that in your diary. You're going to be like, some people came and we definitely didn't trade with them. Yep. Like no <laughs> trading happened whatsoever. Definitely no trading at all. Um, so there's these conflicting accounts and like, who's to say, you know, which one is correct. And, mm-hmm. uh, the timing is not necessarily well suited for being a narrative thing. So that was a, that was a real challenge was sort of hammering that story into something that I could feel comfortable saying, this is a, an accurate historical, uh, tidbit, mm-hmm. but it's also probably not a hundred percent how it went down. Yeah. No, I mean, that's always the thing too with, um, I mean like, uh, when you talk about like, uh, movies that try to condense a historical event down to two hours, basically, yeah. And you're like, well, it's so much richer than what you're actually presenting. I mean, you can try. You can try to do a Titanic. I mean, yep. sort of. Um, and, and you'll get, I mean, you can get a lot of the richness of the ship itself. I mean, if you're James Cameron, you can just go down to the bottom of the ocean and find it and whatnot. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to not only make that as accurate as possible, but then to make it engaging you know, uh-huh. for, for people to want to actually, like, spend time either reading or watching what you've created. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then what was it that, uh, when when were, when did you become the cartoonist that wanted to start making Baggy Wrinkles? Like, was the, the art something that you'd already been doing, or did you start developing that skill? Art was definitely something I'd been doing my whole life, as was writing. But mm. I was uh, dense and didn't really put the two together mm. until... I was well into college. It was like 2010 when I went to the Center for Cartoon Studies and I got to do a five-day summer session there. And that was the workshop where I drew the first chapter of the book. Mm. So I had five very sleepless days and (laughs) nights uh, in in Vermont. And that was what I spent all of my time doing uh, was drawing this first issue. And that was really just because, again, the comics I was reading at the time were, you know, lady autobio cartoonists and I thought okay I, I can do that you know you just like you write what you know yeah mm-hmm. and I couldn't think of what was really interesting that I had done personally 
Yeah, no, um, you, you never think that what you do is actually interesting. No, and, no, I thought it was pretty boring, and mm-hmm. then realized that tall ships are maybe not a thing that everyone's gotten to interact with, so. <laughs> Not in those landlocked states, definitely. Yeah, nah, God, talking to people who haven't grown up near the ocean is so surreal for me. I had a pen pal in, uh, at a sister school of the place where I went to school in India, um, when I was growing up and I remember writing to her and she was telling me about the fact that they were taking her younger brother to see the ocean for the first time. Cause they lived in the middle of the country mm-hmm. and he was 10. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow, that has got to be a mind trip. Like just, yeah, no, it's, it's weird. Like, li- yeah. Living in Washington state where you're just like, it's just, it's just a given. Like you're always it's just right there. You just see the water all the time. Like, even if you don't like specifically go to the ocean, like in Seattle, like the sound is just like right there. So uh-huh. totally. yeah. So yeah. Anyone who's like, well, my, a friend of mine lives in the, um, Illinois area, um, in Champaign and she wanted sushi for her bachelorette party. And I was like, mm, okay. you really want to have sushi in the state of Illinois? She's like, trust me, it's fine. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> like, we had a very long conversation about that. <laughs> like, yep. Yes. It's like, I don't want to get sick right before your wedding, quite frankly. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, um, because Baggy Wrinkles was a, um, really was a successful Kickstarter, definitely. Um, you, and you've been talking kind of about you know, the experiences, like, after the fact of people have discovered a love of the, the, the ocean and the maritime culture, you know, through your comic as well. Like, um, I mean, that's just, it's just, like, really incredible, like, quite frankly. Um, I, I don't know where that was going, but I just wanted to tell you that that was really interesting. So. <laughs> that's, I, I can tell you that it is exactly, I have that exact same response, that it blows my mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why it should, because it's like, this is what this work is meant to do it is a communicative medium like comics are designed to tell stories to other people and nonfiction comics are designed to communicate real things to other people in a way that is hopefully inspiring mm-hmm. and allows them to be enthusiastic about those things as well um so it shouldn't really come as a surprise per se but i don't know there's still a part of me that felt like i was collecting old work and of course this is that artist thing of like six years down the line looking at that first comic is really painful in some ways yeah it's like, oh lord like oh, my art is so much better than it used to be and i have you know better grasp of the medium but in other ways like i think all the building blocks are there like the the story is still compelling to people and i just didn't necessarily believe that this as a collection would hang together because all these chapters were drawn at different parts of my life with kind of different intentions uh and i didn't necessarily believe that it would land with people and so to hear from folks who are encountering it as a unified object and are asking me like wow so when you were writing this book as if like i sat down and said okay i'm going to create a middle grade graphic novel which is going to like (laughs) teach children about a love of the sea that was another interesting part was being labeled as a a middle grade book um or like a a ya title Mm -hmm. um which basically means like you know the 8 to 12 8 to to 10 um age range of like when kids are in middle school like six through 11th wait 6th through 9th I mean yeah um, <laughs> and a lot of people started talking to me like oh that's really interesting like when did you decide to write for a middle reader audience or like middle reader this and middle reader that and eventually I was like look I did I I drew a book for myself mm-hmm. uh it may be that I have the sensibility of a middle schooler I certainly wouldn't say that's false <laughs> well we all have our moments I suppose <laughs> yeah but like when I thought about it more it, it I realized that it made a lot of sense because honestly I think middle school is one of the last times when we allow ourselves to 
be unabashedly enthusiastic about things. Mm-hmm. And in high school, coolness sets yeah. in. You oh, know, that like thing. being blasé about stuff. And it's uncool to be palpably excited so that you are actually vibrating in your chair over how cool you think some part of history is. <laughs> and I feel really fortunate that I continued to have teachers into high school who were willing to like force students to stand on their chairs and shout about Greek and Roman politics because they were just so into it. Um, thank you, Wendy Morgando, wherever <laughs> you are now. Uh, <laughs> no, I had I had professors, uh, some, in, some in high school and some in college, who wanted us to reenact... Um, Oh God, what was it? It was the trial after the Boston Massacre. And he was like, so you're rabble rousers. So start rousing rabbles. And so we'd have to be like, rabble, 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 rabble. <laughs> It's like, I mean, that's the thing. Like engagement is, yeah, exactly. is, is the primary word here because your, your work is, um, yeah, you know, people can um, label it as um, middle, you know, middle age, middle reader uh, or whatnot. But at the same time, what it is, is it's an engaging, um, accessible piece of art. Yeah. And when people were asking me, you know, for publication details, it was like, cool, so what's the age range? And I was like, well, honestly, the people who have been enjoying this up until now are primarily grown-ass adults who have careers in the maritime industry. <laughs> um, and they get a lot out of it, too. So I don't want to necessarily say, like, oh, this book is only good for kids. Because that's why I, I totally understand that it's necessary to have age labeling for marketing and, you know, for appropriate school use and all this other stuff. Yeah. But I genuinely do believe that I have so many people who tell me they've given this book to their dads mm. and they're like, my dad doesn't read comics. He reads your comic. <laughs> <laughs> Someone told me that their dad had read the entire book in one sitting without getting up to pee, which if you knew my dad, she said is an incredibly high compliment. Wow. <laughs> And then you're getting into the realm of too much information. You're like, okay. Oh, it absolutely isn't. I think it's hilarious and delightful. <laughs> it's like, I, I, and I really, really enjoyed that. The fact that at the book release party, you know, there were sort of crusty old salts who were coming to the thing. And then like these young, you know, Tumblr teens who were showing up with their awesome comics that they're working on. And like that, that range of people is really, that makes me feel really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really exciting to me. So anyway, the, yeah, the, the stuff in, all the art development is like, that's a thing that I, I wonder about actually as my business has grown because it has become a business, right? And that's Mm -hmm. the thing that every freelancer kind of has to grapple with eventually is like, either you do enough work independently that you end up working with a publisher. Yeah. Um, or you stay independent and you have to juggle doing that stuff with, uh, maintaining your sanity and also cultivating an artistic practice and like growing your creative work over time. Yeah. And that's no mean feat. No, I mean, that's the, the, the one thing that I respect the hell out of, especially a freelance uh, artist, because you guys have so much you have to, like, you know, craft your brand, you know, whatever right. that may be. <laughs> whatever uh, that means. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I I have a running joke on this podcast that towards the end because I'm both, what is it, the, that girl with the curls and the maniacal geek, and I was like, because I don't know anything about branding, so I just, yep. just stuck with whatever works. Um, but, but it's so completely true that, you know, you have to kind of focus on that once you gain the, I mean, to lack of a better word, like the notoriety, you know, for, uh, what you do and, you know, the, the product that you put out basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So it's like, I, I hella respect that. I mean, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I, you know, there was a panel, uh, a panel discussion I ended up on at my alma mater, um, 
which I was a little miffed at, at the start because they put me on this like arts and crafts panel. Like, oh no! Oh, you got an arts and crafts panel? Come on, get out of here! <laughs> um, and the other two ladies on the panel, there was one woman who runs an independent jewelry design studio here in Portland, and another one who runs a uh, local vegan alternative colored lipstick. She's the Portland Black Lipstick Company. Um, what? And they don't just do black; they also do like all these other kinds of colors, and they're like you know vegan, locally sourced. Uh, lip colors, which is pretty cool. It's, it's um, very Portland, I'm just saying. Oh yeah, it's the most Portland. Um, but initially I was like, this isn't really, there was a creative entrepreneurship panel and I was like, I want to be on that panel. But uh, the three of us were all three, you know, ladies running independent businesses who we ended up just having this fantastic discussion, which I wish I had recorded. I usually record all my panels and mm-hmm. that one I did not. Uh, and we just kind of forgot that the audience was there and like really got into the meat of um the fact that all of us had become accidental business owners and Mm -hmm. none of us had set out to start businesses and I think that's really an important thing to recognize is that usually if you're starting a business like launching a restaurant say you get a business plan and you take out a loan and you have an accountant and you like you know figure out what you're gonna do with your branding and being a freelance creator or like stumbling into something that becomes your job, even though at the start it was just something that you love doing mm-hmm. is really different because I think a lot of us don't go into it with that degree of planning. Mostly we wake up three years in and go, Oh shit, I'm running a business. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, so what's branding? All of my social media handles are different things. Uh, is this bad? Like, yeah. How do I fix it? <laughs> It's like um, I'm real. I'm I'm raging against the man. Oh wait, I'm the man. Damn it! Yeah, when did I become the man? Ah, uh, the worst. It's like damn so, it, yeah, Green Day. It's, it's useful to be able to package some of those skills. And like, I taught a class on comics and the internet, which kind of ended up being like a web comics and social media boot camp mm-hmm. um, at this art school in Denmark earlier this year in March. And wow. it was the first time I'd really had to codify all of this stuff that I've learned mm-hmm. over the course of a very long period of time into. Um, some kind of uh, it's yeah, it's te- take- teachable content. Yeah, right? no, it's taking things that you think of just as intuitive, and then exactly, and trying yeah. to kind of you know, it, like you said, codify them or like you know, make a plan out of them that others can follow. Yeah, and it's only when you articulate them that you're like, "This is crazy." <laughs> I sound like a crazy person right now, and you're like, "Okay, if you're sharing a photo to Instagram, you can't automatically share it to Twitter because it's not going to upload natively." So here's what you do: you're going to take this thing and just. <laughs> And you're like, oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. Damn it. Yeah, just too much. <laughs> oh, it's like, uh, yeah, no, I can't, I can't even imagine. Like, I'm, I might be on a panel at Emerald City this, uh, next year that's kind of about, um, it's more like career, not necessarily a career because I don't, I don't make any money off of what I'm doing currently. I mean, I might right. someday, but, you know. Yeah, but like, that's not really the reason that we get into doing this stuff and that's kind of what makes it work yeah exactly it's like um yeah the, the panel is supposed to be more about like kind of um uh, careers that are a little bit adjacent to the comic uh, creating process so you're not a writer or technically like the the artist or the penciler or the inker or anything like that but it's like myself being kind of a uh you know kind of comics journalist or reviewer as well as a podcaster and we have um uh someone who uh, does back matter material and translates and then colorists and, and whatnot. So we're trying to put that kind of a panel together. So, uh, cool. yeah. Um, but I mean, it's in, it's in a similar kind of vein where it's just like, you don't, you're not going like the traditional route basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then you just kind of happen to, like you said, three years in stumble, you know, stumble upon the fact that, Oh, 
I'm part of this now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And not just feeling like you're in the same way that I think it's really unproductive to feel like you're not a real cartoonist if you also have a day job. Like mm-hmm. that's, I, I think that's silly. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really not, I understand that it can be frustrating to have a day job and desperately want to be spending all of your time actually working on, uh, you know, making things yeah. and like the constriction, the, the constraint of having to put in a nine to five and then like muster the energy to work in the evening when you're like, if I had more time, I'd be able to get so much more done. But then you can't discredit the fact that so many kids are coming out of school with crippling amounts of student debt. Mm -hmm. And it's completely irrational to ask them to juggle the stress of wondering where their next paycheck is going to come from with being able to put out dependable creative work. And stress plays such a huge part in that. And there are some ways in which the pressure cooker of stress is the only reason I get anything done. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways in which if I'm stressed and uncertain and anxious, it's really difficult for me to like sink into the more exploratory parts of the creative process and really get to the interesting stuff. No, totally. I mean, I completely understand that. Like, uh, I mean, yeah, doing, doing a nine to five, you're like, well, this is what's paying for everything. And then when I get home, it's like, I'm exhausted. Like how much effort do I really want to put into writing something right now? Or, Uh you know, I could easily just watch YouTube videos and just turn my brain off for a while before I have to go back and do it all over again. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and then there's that, um, that, that other added pressure and anxiety of not producing something, and then you're like, oh my god, if I don't do this, then this will happen, you know, and the dominoes will fall down, and then, oh, we're all dead. Yep. You know, you know, it's going way above and beyond, but I, I feel like everyone kind of goes through that process at least once, you know, every week or so. <laughs> once a day, perhaps. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we're, we're a little over an hour, but before, uh, we kind of like sign off on this, um, I did want to ask kind of more in the, uh, the media oriented stuff with like, uh, sailing and maritime stuff. Cause we talked about, uh, Cutthroat Island, obviously. Yes. Um, do you have any particular movies other than Cutthroat Island or television shows or works that you would recommend people watch to like for fun or for more historical accuracy? Like either, either way you want to go with that. Mm. Master and Commander is, you, you cannot go wrong. There we um, go. <laughs> as a cinematic experience, it is fantastic. I would highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, I'm actually consuming far more uh, written media right now. Like, I'm reading a lot of books, um, partially because people keep sending them to me, which yeah. is fantastic. Uh, my friend Kate Milford, who is, um, full disclosure, repped by the same agent who, that I am, uh, she... When I went to go to a mixer that was being thrown by said agent, I didn't actually meet the agent at all. A friend who was also represented by Barry said, um, oh, you know, you have to meet Kate. She writes books about tall ships. <laughs> and I spent the entire evening at the bar talking to her about ships and, and books, and she was showing me cover art from her new book. And she writes uh, sort of YA middle grade fantasy books about a tall ship sailing protagonist with blonde curly hair whose name is Lucy. Hey. And it's set in this universe that's like a sort of magical, realist, alternate, um, East Coast colonial time period. Like, it's, it's just, War of 1812 era, really mm-hmm. not colonial. Um, <laughs> that's completely different. A <laughs> little bit, but yeah, it's fine. Uh, um, <laughs> every time I think about the East Coast, I'm like, yeah, colonial stuff, that's where that happened, is over there. You know, uh, those things. <laughs> actually a time period and not, and anyway, uh, skirting <laughs> over the fact that I know nothing about history, um, <laughs> Kate's books are delightful. Uh, they are, just like wonderful rip roaring adventures. And she has done such incredible 
research to make sure that the all of the maritime stuff is accurate and uh there's just obviously such a love of ships in the sea there and i think it's a real lovely introduction um so her new book the left-handed fate just came out which is also following the the um the fates if you will of these characters this girl lucy and her brother um and there's like magic and adventures and ships and sailing and stuff and i'm just really all about it so i'm really enjoying that um compass south by rebecca mock and hope larson mm-hmm. is a new book that's out right now which uh there's a s- sequel is it a trilogy or a duology yeah do they call it that do they call it i don't know what the thing is when you've got two books but part one is out right now part two is coming out next year there's dos libros and we'll call it that yeah it's a uh it's a graphic novel series um fictional historical about um a set of siblings that get separated and like have to find each other. And there's a lot of tall ships and nautical adventure in there. Let's see what else. Sailor Twain. Um, oh yeah. I have that one. <laughs> yeah. Sailor Twain is really fantastic by Mark Siegel, um, mm-hmm. who runs for second publishing. His book is lovely. Again, not sailing ships, paddle steamers, but just really atmospheric. And, uh, the charcoal drawings in there are just gorgeous. Yeah. I'm really just looking around to see like what books I can see from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cause they're just all over the place. Um, <laughs> Oh, another really good one. This one's a little bit more obscure, but for people who are looking for a really lovely first-person account of what it's like to sail on a tall ship, especially as a woman, I would recommend a book by Fran Taylor called Wind in My Wings. Okay. And you'll have to dig for it online because she uh, lives in Australia and like she published it, so um, you'd have to get a copy from her, and shipping is kind of outrageous. Oh, yeah. But I would say super worth it. Um, just a really charming first-person account of her life, which is fascinating. Like, if you ever want to read about somebody who just obviously has an innate sense of adventure, this woman is such an inspiration. She's probably in her 70s now, or Mm -hmm. 80s even. Um, She's Scottish, but left Scotland when she was 18 and emigrated to Australia. And from an early age, really wanted to work on tall ships, but it was at a time when women weren't really permitted in maritime trades. So... Her initial plan was to become a cosmetologist and then become a hairdresser on a cruise ship and, like, try and weasel her way into the industry. Oh, I love it. (laughs) And she ends up finding her way onto a sailing ship and then, like, she ends up hooking up with uh, Captain Cook's replica, the the replica of his uh, ship, the Endeavor, in Australia. And that gives her the bug and then she spends the rest of her life, like, many decades flying all over the place. And, you know, it's it's very much a labor of love book. It's not, like, a professionally... Um, put out thing but I mean it's delightfully written uh, it's very accurate and she's just a charming narrator and there are some lovely photographs and stuff so I, I've been reading a lot of the classic first person narrative um, like last days of the Clipper Ships books that are out there The Last Grain Race by Eric Newby is a really famous one mm-hmm. um, and then Two Years Before the Mast by Dana is like a, a the big one that everyone talks about and honestly like Maybe this is just my misandrist bias uh, <laughs> coming out here, but, like, I kind of, there's a part of me that feels like, ah, uh, if you've read one hyper-masculine, like, first-person narrative of Taiwan, you've read them all. Yeah. Uh, this is not true, though. And I would also, I mean, like, Moby Dick, obviously, mm. uh, super great. Anyway, this is all a lot of, this is a lot of book stuff. It's a lot of homework, um, people, but you're gonna do it. It's okay. Oh, but it's all great. Yeah. Just so much. I, I actually did start a, uh... And I, which I haven't updated in ages, um, one of those bookshelf tumblers. So mm. if you, I can't remember where I linked to it, but I think it's just lucybellwoodreads.tumblr.com. Okay. 
and uh, you can go there and you can filter by boats, and there's a whole section of books that I like that have to do with boats. Nice. No, I, I will. Uh, I'll get the link and I'll put it into the uh, body of the article once the once this goes out. Yeah, I did have a lot of people tell me to watch Black Sails, that pirate show mm. on Stars. Uh, I'm not a big TV watcher, but I watched the pilot and uh, it was garbage. Uh, God, it was infuriatingly bad. Garbage from like a narrative or just from the sailing aspect? Oh, everything. Two of us random like lesbian makeouts. Like, I'm all for lesbian makeouts, but when it's very clearly like let's have this happen for no particular reason whatsoever aside from the fact that we can get some tatas out and then yeah. up the readings is like come on guys mm. and i don't know the sh- like all the rigging and all the ships was saggy and oh. <laughs> did you ever watch um horatio hornblower did you ever watch those yes and those are a perennial favorite amongst tall ship sailors oh. there's also um a really excellent uh dvd which you can get from the mystic seaport gift shop and there was a period of time where it was available online somewhere but i think alas that video has been removed Mm -hmm. but there was a photo that irving johnson pioneer of sail training in north america uh took when he rounded cape horn on a clipper ship in the last heady days of the sailing trade it's actually the peking um this enormous ship from the Flying P line, which is a famous line of clipper ships, and she was actually housed at the South Street Seaport in New York up until a couple weeks ago when she finally departed uh, and went off to Hamburg, where they're doing an enormous restoration. And in her place, they have just gotten a brand new, fully restored clipper ship of similar size called the Waver Tree. And I'm half, almost possibly regretting that I'm not at New York Comic Con this weekend. I'm not really regretting it. I, <laughs> rather be at home but <laughs> like travel wise probably a good idea i am, I am burnt out on mm. this year but uh i was definitely really tempted by like oh but i could just bunk off the show and go look at waver tree <laughs> you just leave a sign like lucy bellwood will be back eventually <laughs> i have talked about doing this going to san diego comic-con and instead of going to the con just going to the star of india the tall ship that's down there and yeah. setting up on board and being like cool well i'm tabling here and if you want to leave San Diego and come hang out with me on this tall ship, let's do that. Like, if Chip Zdarsky can do ZdarsCon, I can do this thing. Yeah. No, you could uh, basically do, like, that's your panels. Like, you take all the people onto the ship. Yeah. and it's, <laughs> it's just like, okay, we're leaving. Come it, with me. It's a very interactive panel. Right. <laughs> like, you're just we're giving a lecture. This thing, and it's going to be awesome. Lead them all in a chorus of what do you do with a drunken sailor, and then, you know. Yeah, exactly. We'll sing shanties together, and Hells yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on board, I'll do it. <laughs> right? It's gonna be great. Do you do San Diego? Is that a is that a big pilgrimage for you? Uh it no. Um I, I'm kind of restricted to the Pacific Northwest. Um yeah. so it's I, a, I mean I've never been because it's just like an enormous expense. Yeah, it's it's more like I would I'll probably do it eventually, like one day, but I'm not sure when that day is going to be. <laughs> so right. it's like I don't I mean I can already handle like the crowds that are, are here in Seattle and everything, but I don't know if I could handle San Diego. Yeah. It's like, I, I, that social anxiety would just be like, okay, we're just, we're pushing it. We're pushing it way too far, Sam. <laughs> like, oh my god, it's so huge. It's so huge. Yeah. Um, but I, I did actually, I was in San Diego a few years ago, and it was like the week after Comic-Con um, for an archives <laughs> conference. laid waste to the streets. Oh my god. Well, bodies everywhere. And it, and, it, and it was the week after, and it was in the, I mean, we were going to the conference center for uh, for an archives conference, and so I got to, like, see all the, you know, the ships going by, and then, you know, just get to be in that area, and I'm just like, man, if I was here for a comic book convention, this, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, 
Um, well, we, we're, we're at about an hour 15, so uh, I think that's pre- a good place to, to, to call her good. Sounds good to me. Excellent. Um, so this is going to actually post on Friday. Uh, okay. Is there anything you want to promote uh, that's coming up? I know you're not at New York Comic Con, but uh, anything coming up that people can see you at or you know talk to you about or anything like that? I'm going to be at Thought Bubble in uh, Leeds in the UK. Uh, November 5th and 6th, I believe, are the dates. It's that first weekend in November. Okay. Um, so that's my only other appearance this year, but I have also got this new collection, this little box set out of all of the drawings I did for the 100-day project this year. Oh, cool. And it's an awesome, it's a thing that I'm really proud of. Uh, it's, it's like three little mini comics that are at size, so I drew all these entries in 100 pages of pocket notebooks. Mm-hmm. And uh, reprinted them at the same size, so they're really itty-bitty, and made a little slipcase for them that's, like, got gold foil printing on the outside, and and I'm just really delighted with how they came out. You're so so proud of it, it's so amazing. Yeah, I'm so happy. Um, So those are out in my store right now, and I'm uh, pushing people over to to buy those so that I can get all the orders shipped out by the end of October. So that's my shiny new thing that I'm excited about, and of course, um, copies of Baggy Wrinkles, too. Excellent. Um, And uh, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash lubellwoo, L-U-B-E-L-L-W-O-O. Mm-hmm. That's also my Instagram handle. I'm Lucy Bellwood on Tumblr. Uh, I am Lucy Bellwood on Patreon. And my website is lucybellwood.com. I'm also on Facebook as Baggy Wrinkles. Okay. So one thing where it's just like, okay, it's not Lucy Bellwood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to like make things really confusing. Fortunately, the name of the Facebook page is technically... Baggy Wrinkles, The Reinvigorated Artistic Adventures of Lucy Bellwood. Uh, gotcha. Which is a holdover name from when I was in college, but I never changed it. Um, <laughs> it sounds like so the... So if the you t- search for Lucy Bellwood, you will actually get my page as well. That that works out okay. It but. sounds like the titles from, like, those, uh, what, eight, uh, 19th century books or whatever. It's like the yes. really long-ass paragraph title. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being the... Being adventures like, and forthwith here in which I learned many things including the tying of a bowline how to swear like a sailor yeah. <laughs> um, excellent and uh, for, for all those listening as well the deets for uh, Maniacal Geek and That Girl with the Curls or you can just reach me at darling underscore Sammy S-A-M-M-Y maniacalgeek.com and uh, SoundCloud for That Girl with the Curls as well as iTunes um, and uh, yeah so uh, Lucy thank you so much uh, for coming on the show I really appreciate it absolutely my pleasure this has been fantastic awesome and uh, as always good night everybody bye